I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, historian Luke A. Nichter, author of The Nixon Tapes with Douglas Brinkley, The Last Brahmin, Henry Cabot Lodge Jr., and The Making of the Cold War, and Lyndon B. Johnson, Pursuit of Populism, Paradox of Power joins us to discuss his latest book, The Year That Broke Politics, Collusion and Chaos in the Presidential Election of 1968. We'll be discussing the tumultuous year of 1968 in politics from Lyndon B. Johnson announcing that he would not be seeking another term in office to the infamous riots at the Democratic National Convention. We'll also be discussing the little-known and only recently discovered role that Billy Graham, the famous evangelist, played in the year politically. All that and much more in the conversation to follow. Without further ado, let's get right to it with historian Luke A. Nichter. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm very excited to be speaking with, historian Luke A. Nichter, author of The Year That Broke Politics, Collusion and Chaos in the Presidential Election of 1968. He's also the author of books on George W. Bush, Lyndon Johnson, Richard Nixon, and Henry Cabot Lodge Jr. So he sort of has a, a, a lot of familiarity with the era of the 60s and 70s, having written on Nixon, Johnson, etc. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Uh, Thanks for having me on. So, Luke, if you could, maybe you could sort of set the stage, because I think a lot of people will recognize 1968 is a big year. It's often romanticized because of all the protests that were happening. Uh, And, you know, I think a lot of people look at the 60s and they think, uh, the summer of love, right? That's the popular culture image. But in a lot of ways, it was the summer of rage. And it was a time of, you know, just incredible uh, tumult. Uh, Could you sort of set the stage and paint the picture of what was happening at the beginning of 1968 leading into the presidential election? Oh, sure. Uh, You know, and I think I would set it up in in two different ways um, for your audience. Uh, I think, um, you know, obviously people at home and around the world were simply stirred up. You know, a lot of the uh, the counter the cultural movements, counter cultural movements um, in this country uh, mirrored what was going on around the world. 
Um, and, and, you know, I remember Nixon's longtime speechwriter, Ray Price, uh, always liked to say, you know, that if the 1860s was an actual civil war, the 1960s was, in effect, a proxy civil war. Of course, a lot of people today draw parallels to this time period now, you know, as in perhaps another time period that politics was broken, you know, to borrow from the book title. And I think, secondly, I would say, um, you know, when I see a new book uh, on politics and I read a lot of political history, I, I guess I'm a bit of a cynic. You know, I, I, that voice in my head kind of makes me wonder, you know, what's the author's take? You know, is there an agenda or a favorite side of it? And I, I think what readers of this book see is that, that I, I try not to take a political side. I, I really tra- take a, a what I would call kind of a something for everyone approach. And, and I present the four major sides. And so to remind and uh, your audience, that's outgoing President Lyndon Johnson, um, his vice president, Hubert Humphrey, who becomes the Democratic nominee. Uh, then we would have called him former vice president, Richard Nixon, who goes on to become the Republican nominee. And at the time, uh, the former and future governor of Alabama, uh, George Wallace. And I, I present these four sides, I think, in a way that the families and the former staffers who who I talked to, interviewed, and helped me on the book, that if they read that part of the book, that, that they would they would basically recognize it. And instead, what I focus is really on two things. You know, why Americans came to vote the way they did. You know, after all of the the tumultuous events of that year, and secondly, kind of how Lyndon Johnson maneuvered throughout that year. I think most books uh, discount him, write him out of history after March thirty first when he goes on television and withdraws from the, the race that year. But a withdrawal from the ballot, I argue, was not a withdrawal from politics. He simply shifted his energy to his remaining months in office and ultimately to uh, the, the choice of his successor, who could bear quite a bit on his own personal legacy. And so I think that's kind of my basic framework and my approach uh, that you see in the book. I also wanted to ask, before we get into the nitty gritty uh, so I mentioned that you've written books like The Last Brahmin, Henry Cabot Lodge Jr. and The Making of the Cold War. Uh, with Douglas Brinkley, you wrote The Nixon Tapes. Uh, so you've written about uh, these figures, including Lyndon Johnson, before. How do you place this book within the context of some of the other books you've written on political history? Well, I mean – there's, I would say, a similarity and a difference. And the similarity is what I like to write about, you know, given my own instincts, is a subject that we think we know a lot about. Um, there's a firm conventional wisdom that that's a, it's, it's an established history for many decades. And then I guess kind of taking new evidence, kind of blow that up or at least test it and see whether what we thought we knew is really, does it, does it really stand up? you know, in the face of new evidence. And I, I, that's more or less the model that I follow. Um, and in this particular book, uh, there has been all kinds of new evidence, whether it be Lady Bird's diary, White House tapes, and the biggest of all, which I'm sure we'll get to, is, is the, the diary of Billy Graham, who acted as an intermediary between the major characters. You know, I, I wish I could say I was so brilliant to have planned that discovery halfway through. Um, but, you know, I went down that rabbit hole. It, it was a result of a conversation I had with former Vice President Walter Mondale uh, at his law firm in December 2017, when I didn't think he knew a lot about 68. It really wasn't in his memoirs. I never heard him talk much about it. But he explained to me how, uh, you know, he co-chaired Humphrey's campaign in 68. He, he was then Senator Mondale. He had Humphrey's old Senate seat at the time. And he told me that Humphrey and he became very close during the 1970s and that they discussed the 68 campaign many times. Well, at that point, he had my attention. And he said, I'll tell you, Lyndon Johnson definitely did not want Humphrey to win. He said it twice. And so I thought, what does it mean? I mean, how could you challenge a core assumption? If you can challenge that, then what else can you challenge? And I said, what do you mean? Do you think he really wanted, Johnson wanted Nixon to win? And he kind of gazed off and then he kind of returned back and looked at me and he said, maybe, you know, sort of maybe. And so that really was a challenge to me to really dig deep into archives, trying to come up with a fresh assessment, a fresh take on a complicated year that, that a lot of people have been over before. And, and I think what, what it produced is a book that, that's pretty different than anything else out there. If you could, could you talk a little bit about uh, LBJ's announcement that he would not be running again? Um, you know, he wasn't going to pursue uh, another term because it seems like 
he sort of did that abruptly. You know, he was giving a speech on another topic and then he sort of slid it in there. Uh, so could you talk about that specific moment? Because it, I think it, it caused a lot of political chaos. Yeah, I, I mean, you set it up really nicely there in terms of, um, you know, I think so that and so much of the year, there's kind of been what we what we grew up and learned and then kind of maybe how it's different is what you see in the book. And so what what I learned is you know, this was March 31st. Uh, his he, it was a, it was a speech about Vietnam, um, kind of uh, updating the nation on what was going on. And then that was the nation's longest war. We just had the Tet Offensive early in the year, so this kind of simultaneous coordinated attack by North Vietnam uh, on on American soldiers and our South Vietnamese allies, multiple cities simultaneously in South Vietnam at a time when Americans were being told the war was going better and all of a sudden maybe it wasn't going better. Um, and so he was respond- his timing of the speech came after in the wake of that, but also the New Hampshire primary uh, when Johnson won, but really only by a whisker, you know, against kind of anti-war challenger Senator Gene McCarthy. And so I think the history was really written up as the speech was a response to those two events and, and, and that idea was confirmed by the final lines that you mentioned in the speech, that he, he would not run for re-election and he would not accept the nomination, even if his party went ahead and nominated him. And so I think the history for decades was uh, it must have, you know, it must have been a response to Vietnam and his own political fortunes. Whereas the new evidence really shows, I think Johnson was much more concerned about things like his own personal health. I think was a much bigger factor that his heart attack was more severe previously at two or three major operations in the White House that Americans didn't know a lot about. And Lady Bird's diary, especially, you know, it's hard to write about somebody who was not themselves a writer, uh, but she was. She was way ahead of her time and college educated. And, and, you know, she dictated her diary almost every day. And sometimes he interrupted her while she was dictating it. So she captures not only his interruptions, but sometimes his own thoughts to kind of the political news of the week. And Lady Bird's diary shows that as early as 1965, um, you know, after, shortly after, within months of winning in a landslide re-election in 1964, he kind of, Johnson came to accept the idea that, you know, he finished Kennedy's term and now he would have his own four-year term, but that was probably going to be it. He turned 60 in, in 1968, which doesn't seem very old to us today, but his father died at age 60. It was kind of family lore that Johnson men didn't live long. And two of his political heroes, you know, Woodrow Wilson and FDR, Johnson was born in 1908, so he was old enough to remember their presidencies. Wilson was kind of semi-crippled the final two years in the White House. FDR, of course, died in office uh, in the spring of 1945. And Johnson knew enough to know that he wanted to go out on top. He didn't want to go out on a stretcher. Uh, and so I think, you know, lots of other factors, personal for Johnson, not so much political, came to influence that decision. So it was a surprise to everyone else. But I think to Lyndon Johnson, it was a very carefully staged, managed announcement. I also wanted to ask, so you mentioned Eugene McCarthy, who was sort of going up against uh, Johnson. How much do figures like Eugene McCarthy, who was very anti-war, and then things like the assassinations of that time period, like the assassination of Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy. How much does that play into the tumultuousness of 68? Well, I think it, those events you mentioned just add to the year that's full of melodrama. Uh, and, and um, you know, while there are many parallels to an era today, uh, when it comes to things like the draft, you know, which tore the country apart back then, or or the Vietnam War, or the assassinations, first of Dr. Martin Luther King in April, and then of, of Senator Robert Kennedy in June, just at a moment when his campaign was beginning to take off and surge, I think shook not just the nation, but the, the political class uh, had, had a huge impact. Um, you know, and, and I think Lyndon Johnson, like a lot of Americans, again, kind of restoring him to the center of the story, as opposed to many books that count him out. And, and instead, the spotlight turns to all the challengers rather than the lame duck. Um, I think Johnson was reacting to events each month that year, completely unpredictable, you know, the, the year before, just as many Americans were. And I think when Johnson withdraws he, and he begins to move to, you know, planning his, his political successor, his own legacy, I think at first he sees Nelson Rockefeller as kind of the liberal Republican governor of New York, uh, most in line with his politics, perhaps his policies. 
uh, makes two or three attempts to Rockefeller, who's kind of wishy-washy, he's in and he's out. And by May, thanks to his foreign policy advisor, then Harvard professor Henry Kissinger, uh, writing fairly critical speeches on Vietnam of the Johnson administration. And so that doesn't work out, I think, the way that Johnson hoped. And then Johnson, kind of, as I document, kind of, I think, gradually shifts into the Nixon column. Um, I think because he comes to see Nixon's not criticizing him, you know, on the war. Uh, Nixon is making surprisingly what I guess we'd call progressive statements for a Republican. I would call it kind of a Republican shading of the great society. So rather than big welfare programs, Nixon's talking about tax cuts and investment in cities and black businesses and home ownership. I mean, the, the, the recipients, I think, are more or less the same people, but the means to achieve the end, you know, is slightly different. And so I think Johnson, it's a it's a gradual process uh, that where I think Johnson sees that Nixon, of all the alternatives, is is the best for himself personally in terms of his own legacy. So you mentioned Billy Graham. Let's let's get into this. Uh, how did Billy Graham, this evangelist, sort of act as an intermediary between Johnson and some of the other campaigns? Uh, what, what were some of the maybe um, back channel deals that went on? Well, I, and I, you know, I wish I could say I had anticipated this in the research. It was two months after I saw Mondale in Minneapolis. Uh, in February of 2018, uh, Graham died at age 99. Uh, and uh, I, I was uh, that began the process, which continues today, today and will take years still to open his 70 years of personal papers. And at least the crown jewel of those that I've seen the tip of the iceberg, and it's the first book to feature that, is the Graham Diaries, or he called his VIP notebooks. And so what Graham did, Graham had access to what some people have called the President's Club. He was friends with presidents on both sides of the aisle. You know, that despite, you know, public policy differences, you know, those who have held what's been called the loneliest job in the world realize that behind the scenes, they need each other. And Graham documented some of these conversations. And because he lived so long, the, the, the diary begins in 1950 with Harry Truman. It goes all the way to 2014 with President Obama. And there is verbatim content in this that I've seen with presidents, first families, and top staff that I've seen in no other archive or presidential library. And so you have Graham maneuvering between Johnson and Nixon, even Humphrey. He knew Humphrey as mayor of Minneapolis because his ministry was based there beginning in the 40s. He knew Wallace. He knew California Governor Ronald Reagan. He knew former President Dwight Eisenhower. He knew them, I think I calculated an average of 20 years each at that point by the late 1960s. And so these messages that are being passed back and forth, it kind of reaches a peak just after Labor Day, which, believe it or not, used to be the kind of the traditional kickoff of a campaign. And now they seem like they go on all the time. And just after Labor Day, Graham carries a message from Johnson, from Nixon to Johnson in the Oval Office in September. And, and the message, more or less, is a multi-point promise that a future President Nixon would, would not criticize LBJ by name, would give him credit for Vietnam when it was all over and settled, would consult with LBJ in retirement, and would do everything that Nixon could do to give Johnson a good place in history. I think this was an, you know, I thought, what if this, some of this leaked out during the height of a campaign? I'm not sure we keep secrets like that anymore today. Maybe we do. But it was an incredible act of political marksmanship uh, that I think was exactly what Johnson wanted to hear at a time when many in his own party were, were very critical of him. It's interesting, too, because uh, since we're talking about Billy Graham, you know, a lot of people I think today will, uh, think of evangelicals as being very partisan, maybe even pro-Republican. But Graham has sort of traditionally been seen as – I've even seen like New York Times op-eds calling him, you know, the last non-partisan uh, evangelist. Could you talk a little bit more about, you know, the image we have of Graham and just how he was involved in these campaigns or how he was yeah, involved that- in 68? Yeah. And I think we, you know, we look back at this time period too, and we often see, well, Graham must have been closest to Nixon because that kind of came out later during Watergate. In in '68, though, like let's pretend we don't know anything after '68. At the time, Graham was really closest to Johnson. Graham was from Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, Johnson wasn't Southerners didn't really consider Johnson to be a Southerner. 
uh, where he where he was from Gillespie County in Texas was kind of about in the south, really more southwest than south in terms of having something in common with the deep south. So they were sort of moderate southerners, Graham and Johnson, pro-civil rights and sort of symbolic of a political shift that was on the horizon. You know, I, I, my own background is, 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 is not elite. It's sort of, I guess, blue collar or lower middle class. And, I, you know, we were all in an industrial Midwest. Everybody was in a union. Um, you know, my grandparents were the type to have sort of pictures of FDR on the wall. We were Catholic. They loved Kennedy. He was a saint, could do no wrong. And I think, you know, we were basically moderates. And I think like Graham, you know, you didn't always straight ticket vote for a party. You voted for the person. And I think millions of Americans, you know, voted for crossed over and voted for Eisenhower in the 50s. They came back to maybe Kennedy or split with Nixon in 60. They came back to Johnson in the landslide in 64. They weren't sure what to do in 68. And the same moderates who put Johnson over the top in 64 put Nixon over the top in 72. And millions of them became, you know, maybe Reagan Democrats in the 1980s. So this is a group of millions of Americans. Their votes are in play. And the last president to win them as a voting bloc was Lyndon Johnson in 1964. And I think populists on both sides of the aisle since, I would say more recently Republicans because of Trump, have really focused on their votes because they really are kind of these centrist. We like to think that we're so polarized because our news feeds remind us of that every day. But these really are kind of the swing voters who are kind of traditional New Deal Democrats um, who don't always find themselves, you know, having a home in one party or the other, they are somewhat politically mobile. Um, and so I think that's really what Graham, you know, represents. Graham considered himself to be a lifelong Democrat. He said that many times, but that doesn't mean he always voted for that, that way, especially at the top of the ticket. So Graham sort of symbolized the political shift on the horizon. He symbolized the votes of these millions kind of around the political center. Uh, and, and also, you know, as we move 70s and in the 1980s, the history of this period's not really been been written yet, not not thoroughly researched history, uh, the, the shift that, that are on the horizon. So earlier you mentioned Nixon sort of giving almost his own, not, not, not like a progressive sheen, but something in lieu of that with his own right-wing politics when he was on the campaign trail. How important is it to note that? Because it, it sounds like they all these candidates are really trying to figure out, well, where where are these you know voters coming from and how can I get them on my side? How can I get that swing voter? Well, don't forget, I mean, Nixon had lost the presidency in 60 uh, by a close margin to Kennedy and Johnson. He lost uh, the California governorship by a more decisive margin in 62 to Pat Brown. By 68, he was kind of a calmer, more mature, learned, you know, learned version of, of his earlier self. And I think, you know, in terms of political lanes that you want to be in, you know, Democrats always have a registration, a party registration advantage over Republicans. To win as a Democrat, all you need are Democrats to vote for you. You've got the votes. I mean, that is your path to the finish line. To win as a Republican, generally, you need every Republican. You need a good chunk of independents and you need some crossovers, either who don't normally participate or who come over from the Democratic Party. And so Nixon, what he tried to do, oftentimes you look at it at the outcome of an election. If you show me the person who ran as a centrist, they had the biggest road you know, to the White House. They, they had the ability to make the most mistakes and still get elected. And so Nixon tried to hover right over the center. People say Nixon had a secret plan to end the war because he didn't talk about it. Uh, Nixon, he didn't, he didn't talk about, he shaded domestic policy in his own way. He didn't criticize Johnson. I think this is all intentional. This is because he realizes there's one voter in the White House in 1968 who's not criticizing you if you're Nixon. And if you return the favor and don't criticize him, uh, just the lack of Johnson coming out and, and saying negative things about you could be pow work powerfully in your favor. And so I think that's kind of how Nixon Nixon tried to sit in the center where, where the Johnson. So he's very calculating in that way. I, I think absolutely. And by positioning himself in the center, he concedes the left to Humphrey. He concedes the right to Wallace, who we haven't gotten into yet. Uh, and, and he tries to ride that middle lane. I, I would say he's 
just shaded Nixon is a little to the right of his 60 version. In 60, you know, Eisenhower and Lodge, his running mate, were really kind of more on the liberals, moderate to liberal. That Then you have Goldwater goes the other way in 64. And I think Nixon tries to figure out where in the middle between those is my 1968 version. And I think that's the political lane that Nixon's in. I want to get into Humphrey and Wallace, but before we do that, Maybe you could reiterate or delve deeper into why Johnson sort of he stayed political in all of this, even though he wasn't in the election. He said, you know, I'm I'm not running again. So can can you sort of talk about that dynamic and how he decided to be more involved even as he didn't run again? Well, I, I think there's a number of reasons. Uh, uh, yeah, most of the Democratic challengers were campaigning, take the war first. They were campaigning. This was America's longest war. I think we had lost, give or take, 38,000 by the end of 68, and many more Vietnamese, of course. Half million troops deployed in Southeast Asia. Uh, most of the Democratic rivals were, were promising that they would pull out within, say, six months. And Johnson feared, you know, being the first president in U.S. history to be blamed for losing a war. So I think that was powerful. Nixon clearly was the only one, you know, other than Wallace, uh, who was campaign? Nixon was promising to get out, but a kind of on a more graduated timetable. 68 was the first election where the nominees of both parties, Democrat and Republican, were promising to get out of Vietnam, just in slightly different ways. I think Humphrey's timetable was shorter. Nixon's was less specific. And I think that was mainly because he didn't want to offend Johnson. Um, and then on domestic policy, there's something about being succeeded by someone in your own party um, that produces a, an additional challenge in terms of legacy. You know, the Humphrey promise on domestic policy, Humphrey was a master of domestic policy. Uh, I think he, if he had gotten in, it would have been the Great Society, you know, even more so. Bigger spending, even bigger programs, more civil rights. And if you take that approach, you think about put yourself in Johnson's shoes. You think, I'm going to get forgotten on, you know, on that side of the ledger, too, because he's going to do it even better than I did. Johnson was always so pragmatic and cautious. And so, therefore, being succeeded by someone in your own party, and Humphrey was the most responsible one of, of the group, for if you're Johnson, that may not be very good for your own legacy. And I recall one time a White House attorney once told me, a former White House attorney said, you know, put aside party labels, put aside politics and policy, an awful lot happens in this town for selfish, personal reasons. And I think that explains Johnson's motivation. I was going to say, it sounds like Johnson... Uh... <laughs> His stake in it almost had to do with his own sense of ego and, and self. And, you know, Humphrey could have eclipsed him in a lot of ways. Well, yeah. And his political stake didn't go down at March 31st. It went up. And you, you pour even more energy into your remaining months on the job in terms of securing your place in history and making sure whoever your successor was wasn't going to deviate dramatically from what you did in a way that might draw attention to you as a failure. Can you talk a little bit more about Hubert Humphrey and his sort of background uh, and not just his sort of stance on Vietnam, but what he was offering to voters in that election? Yeah, you know, I think we Americans, we look at any any election and we have the red and blue map. We can identify the victor, sometimes the loser. And then we have the, you know, the also rans. And I think Humphrey in 68 is more than an also ran. He's someone who I think who really could have been president. And as I say in the book- Well, as you say in the book, you say he almost actually, he almost defeated Nixon. He closed the gap. Yeah. Well, well, he certainly did. And, and you know, the electoral college, which we can get into, wasn't was, was not as close, especially when you factor in Wallace. But I think Humphrey was a, a master of, 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 of domestic policy. I, I wonder personally whether his best chance might have been 1960 before he went down in defeat to the Kennedy machine in the West Virginia primary at a time when there wasn't a major war which divided the Democratic vote. It would have been the liberals would have been unified behind him at a time when he really could have focused internally more on domestic issues, which which were really what he was good at. Uh, so I think I almost wonder whether he he sort of missed his his window that the Johnson people always told me Lyndon Johnson believed to be president. You had to have a killer instinct with the words they used. And Johnson ultimately believed that that while Humphrey was a, a nice man, perhaps too nice to be in politics, he didn't have the killer instinct. 
Why do you, for people that don't know, why do you say that Humphrey was sort of a master of domestic politics for maybe younger audiences that aren't as familiar with Humphrey? Well, and I'm one of those. I mean, I was born in the late 1970s. But, you know, Humphrey really made his name. Uh, the, the chapter, the first chapter on Humphrey opens at the convention in 1948 in Philadelphia. And at that convention, uh, a, a complete unknown candidate for mayor of Minneapolis, Hubert Humphrey, gets up and gives a speech that just causes absolute pandemonium in the convention hall. He has the, the boldness to declare that civil rights has been overlooked and should be the nation's great, you know, really next priority in terms of policy. It prompts a walkout of, all, of, of the Dixiecrats who go on and hold their own sort of rump convention and nominate Strom Thurmond, you know, a, as their nominee. Uh, some people said you're going to cause Truman to get to get to, uh, to to lose at the ballot box that November. The Republicans had just passed under Lodge a fairly expansive platform on civil rights. And so that was Humphrey at his best, the kind of liberal firebrand, kind of that prairie prog progressivism, uh, kind of boldly proclaiming, you know, really, I mean, he, he was a, he's a guy of ideas kind of ahead of his time. But in 68, was, I think, wedded to so many of Johnson's policies, having been his vice president, that it sort of transformed him into really a role that was unnatural to him as being kind of Johnson's chief defender. And I would argue he wasn't really able to establish himself. And I think one other detail I would mention that's important. I, I used to teach in kind of traditional college age students, 18, 19, 20, 21. And I say, if you ever see a race where you have a sitting vice president running, uh, or someone very close to the incumbent of you know, the outgoing president, that's the candidate to watch because it's very challenging to, to organize a campaign and run a meaningful theme because you, at the same time, you kind of have to argue everything we've done for the last four or eight years has, of course, been perfect and visionary, but yet somehow it's incomplete and I have more to do. But but then the cynic says, well, then why didn't you do it already if you have more ideas? And so it's very difficult to organize around a theme, to know when to deploy the current president as an asset on the campaign trail, but also where to run from him while still securing his endorsement that fall. So Nixon just did that in 60 with outgoing President Eisenhower. He knew how difficult that was. And so I think he had a slight advantage in 68 not having to do that again. And so I think for a number of reasons, we really didn't see Humphrey in his prime in 1968. So then, you know, the elephant in the room here that we haven't gotten into, but we've mentioned him in passing, is uh, George Wallace, who I think if anyone knows him today, they'll know him for giving that speech where he said, you know, segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. Uh, very much remembered for his segregationist and sort of uh, populist views. Uh, so who was George Wallace beyond that? And what was his sort of appeal? Well, I, and you set it up nicely there. Segregation today, tomorrow and forever, right in his inaugural address in 1963. He also promised to stand in the schoolhouse door personally to block integration, you know, at the University of Alabama. And he did. Uh, but Wallace, I would say, like the other characters we've talked about, there's nothing static about this year. And, and Wallace himself, I think, is an evolution that by 1968, a lot, certainly in the national media, missed. This is someone who first ran for governor in Alabama in 1958 as a, as a kind of, I would call it kind of a conservative New Deal Democrat, loses because he won't take on the race issue comes back in 62, runs again, much more conservative, goes right after sort of the endorsement of the Ku Klux Klan, uh, directly makes, you know, sort of race-based appeals to voters, and he wins in 62. But then he begins to shift in 64, and, and a taste of national politics will do that for you. You know, enters three carefully chosen primaries in the Democratic Party, does surprisingly well uh, outside of the South, and moderates his message starts backing away from race. And so by 68, the way I would describe Wallace is, this is really his kind of first full bore 50 state campaign. He runs on an independent party platform because he wants to be free to criticize both major parties and not be tied to either one. He manages to do the impossible and get on the ballot in all 50 states. He navigates 50 sets of state laws, 50 sets of state legal challenges by Democrats and Republicans. 
uh, gets on the ballot, and I would say has a more sophisticated message, kind of like a Huey Long conservative populist in the South, where he doesn't really need to talk about race anymore, because if you're a voter who concern, who's concerned and motivated by race, you already know that he's your candidate. He doesn't need to say it anymore. And so race isn't really explicitly mentioned. It's sort of folded into a more sophisticated uh, sort of a collection of grievances, anti-elite, anti-establishment. You know, I don't think the phrase uh, drain the swamp ever occurred to George Wallace, but if it if it had, I think he would have used it and used it very well. And I think all populists since Wallace on both sides of the aisle, more recently, I'd say Republicans because of Trump, uh, have borrowed from that Wallace kind of anti-elite populist playbook. So you're saying, in other words, that that maybe in some ways, uh, the the simple image of you know, Wallace's appeal was just his racism and getting these racist votes. You're saying there's a bit more to it than that. Not just on Wallace, but all these figures. I think all these figures at one point or another time uh, through political cartoons and others become kind of caricatures to us in history books. And when you begin to look at them closely and, and consider uh, and have an open mind to look at new evidence as it's opened by the National Archives and personal records like the Graham Diary, there's a lot more texture and there, there's a lot more detail that's rich that I think prompts us to take a fresh look at the whole year. I also wanted to mention, uh, just since we 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 talked about populism here with regards to Wallace. How can we look at 68 and characters like Wallace or even characters on the Democratic side like um, Eugene McCarthy and look at the ways in which populism played a role in 68 and apply it to today? Yeah, well, I, you know, what I'm looking forward to 2024 is is first and foremost, you know, who are the candidates who really go after that kind of blue collar, lower middle class vote that's really been up for grabs for now. It'll be 50 years, 60 years uh, next 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 year if, if uh, jo Johnson was really the last one to win. But I think also we're talking about third parties, no label parties, you know, third candidates, independent candidates. You know, who manages to get on the ballot in all 50 states? Wallace did that, except in the District of Columbia, where it really didn't matter that much. Um, so who gets on the ballot? Who goes after those kind of swing voters for the last 60 years? I think those are the parts of the Wallace playbook that that not just Trump, but, but who borrows from a bit of that strategy. I think Wallace was greatly undermined as a campa campaigner. While he only won 10 million votes in the final tally, there was something about Wallace that sort of struck a nerve with, with his supporters. I think the same with Trump, that even in defeat, the, the passion that he sort of evokes from his supporters is very Wallace-like. And I would guess that long after Trump had, leaves the political scene, candidates from both parties will, will borrow from whether it's his direct use of social media, whether it's going after those blue collar, lower middle class voters. I think, I think you know, while it's not a popular view to say this, people borrow from Wallace and they'll borrow from Trump going forward. I also, I, I cannot uh, wrap up this episode without talking at some point about Chicago, 1968, the Democratic National Convention. For those that are unfamiliar, what went down at the Democratic National Convention? Uh, you know, I remember first reading about it, uh, the, the Norman Miller piece on it, uh, which is like a classic to me. But what went down at the Democratic National Convention and just how, you know, how much did it shake up everything? Yeah. So and here's another parallel. The Democrats are going back to Chicago next year. I hope they don't have the same experience. And there's a Robert Kennedy potentially on the ballot, the convention. But in 68, uh, you know, Johnson had selected Chicago as the site of the convention at a time when he thought he was going to be on the ballot. The day of the nomination for president was on his 60th birthday, August 27th, on purpose. It was a handout to his old political friend, Mayor Richard Daley of Chicago. Um, and so what, what Americans, I would say there's two ways to look at it in answering your question. First is the way that millions of Americans experienced it on their televisions, uh, watching from their living rooms, the absolute chaos on the streets from the countercultural movement, uh, hippies, yippies, and other countercultural movements 
uh, in, uh, engaged in a kind of orgy of violence in which the police participated. Uh, and that's not something and it played out kind of on television. I think it was much more exciting than what was going on inside, you know, the convention halls, which I would actually argue, you know, of course, if Kennedy lived, it could have been a heck of a fight inside the International Amphitheater in Chicago. But instead, what played out, I think, was fairly orderly in terms of Humphrey inherited Johnson's delegate strength. You know, the one really interesting thing to go back to Graham for a minute, you know, sometimes people ask me, what could Humphrey have done differently to have won? Because if you said it was pretty close, especially on the popular vote, one thing he could have done in Chicago was get someone like outgoing Texas Governor John Connolly on the ticket as his running mate. That would have that would have denied Nixon, you know, the ability to unify the conservative vote behind him. And again, the Billy Graham diary shows the many ways throughout the year that Graham intervened to help determine that year's outcome. Graham intervenes with Connolly and he says, if you if you stay off the Humphrey ticket, a President Nixon will offer you a cabinet job which is what Nixon does in 71 with Treasury. And so I would argue that while there was chaos outside the street, on the streets, outside the convention hall, which is what many Americans and many of the writers of that year, much more exciting than what went on inside, but what went on inside was a fairly orderly challenge. McCarthy went off on vacation. Kennedy, of course, was assassinated. Uh, McGovern was surged a little bit kind of late, but 72 was going to be his year. Ted Kennedy had a bit of a movement, a groundswell, but it really didn't go anywhere. And so that left Hubert Humphrey. It's interesting to me. What do you think was the primary uh, motivating force for voters in 68? Because I think that takes up a large portion of your book asking, you know, what really voted Americans to vote as they did? Well, and here again is a place where I offer a different take. You know, I, I mean, I think most books on 1968 argue that that Vietnam was the issue from beginning, middle and end. And certainly at the beginning of the year, when many news outlets would have assigned reporters to the campaigns, they would have those reporters would have also been experts in Vietnam on, on the expectation that Vietnam would consistently be the big issue. But you go back and look at the polls. I think that that pattern holds at least into the spring months. But after those twin assassinations of Dr. King and then Senator Kennedy, you see a shift. Vietnam is always there, maybe at 40 percent or so as the most important issue on the minds of voters from the spring until November. But Gallup especially begins to break out individual areas like, you know, unrest and violence and crime. And when you begin to add up those individual categories, especially after those assassinations, they begin to add up to more than Vietnam. Because they're broken out separately, we don't think of it that way. And so I would argue that it was the assassination, assassinations were a shift in the minds of voters who ultimately, you know, wanted to just ultimately escape the chaos of the year and of the decade. And while the Nixon campaign was mostly unexciting the whole year, and its strategy was largely to run out the clock before November, Nixon was a way of kind of escaping the chaos of the year. He wasn't tied to Vietnam. He wasn't tied to the unrest. His political right predated most of that. And while I think voters in both parties Democrats weren't thrilled with Humphrey. Republicans weren't thrilled with Nixon. Another parallel to today. I think a lot of people, I think, gave Nixon a chance because it was a way to sort of hopefully turn the noise level down, which if there was any issue that attracted bipartisan support in 68, it was turning the noise level down. I also wanted to discuss outside of the U.S., how much were events in, say, Moscow or Paris uh, affecting us at home in different ways. Well, Americans are notorious for putting ourselves in the center of the world and thinking that, you know, this is all there is. But, you know, people who were so stirred up at home were also stirred up around the the planet for for similar reasons. And whether you talk, you know, talk about student protests, you can look at at Paris, countercultural movement, you can look across Europe, race and unrest. You can look at Biafra in Nigeria. You can look at apartheid in South South Africa. You can look at the Cultural Revolution in China, uh, and, and not to mention the war and the effect of the war in East and Southeast Asia. I think people around the world were stirred up for many of the same reasons that Americans were stirred up. Um, I, I don't know how much Americans were aware at the time of the events, 
but certainly it was a much broader, you know, global phenomenon and not just one inside our borders. What do you think the biggest myth we have about 68 is? Because I think you're providing a very uh, nuanced picture in a lot of ways, a different picture. What do you think the biggest myth is and where do we get the biggest myths of 68 from? Why do we have this certain um, popular culture image of the chaos of 68 that doesn't necessarily line up with how you present it? It's a great question. And, you know, you're, you're getting deep on me here. Um, uh, but but I think, you know, I would think about it. I think about that in two ways. Uh, this is a book, I think, in some ways that challenges the reader to think more broadly about politics, not just a presidential election in 1968. You know, I, I am used to observing politics from the cheap seats, you know, looking out there at the stage by those participating. Um, and we're told that things happen a certain way. This is a book that sort of asks the question, what if that's not always true? You know, what if things happen in different ways? Uh, we're talking here political succession between president of one party and, and, and a, a candidate of another. And I think a second point is, this is 55 years later, and we're really, I think, just for the first time, able to take a more dispassionate look at this year. We're not as connected to it personally, um, and really comb through it and figure out what really happened. And you know, yeah, while- I, I was going to say it's very different from at the time when you know, if you had turned on the TV back in '68, you'd be seeing you know the heated debates between Vidal on one end and Buckley. So I mean, now without that sort of in the focus, we can view it more dispassionately. And I think that's a lesson for today. You know, every day we all have news feeds, regardless of your politics and our news feeds, they know us, they know what we read. We look for affirmation of our views and our news feeds. I think that the book is also a lesson in, in effect about the essence of history itself, that it's never really over. Uh, and, and I hope it doesn't take 55 years to make sense of our own era today. If it does, I look forward to talk coming back on the show and talking to you then. And it makes sense. And we comb through today. Um, but I think it's, it's there's so much that we don't know, you know, behind the scenes in terms of politics. And in, 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 a, in a week of news, when we go to the polls, you know, we have to make a judgment about how we're going to vote, what our views are based on, you know, incomplete information. But there's an awful lot that we don't know about, about behind the scenes about politics politics, but in particular about the relationships between politicians, which is the grand diary, which makes it so unique, is that it gives us a rare look into the political world and the relationships in that world, which are not only rarely documented, but in this case, don't really rhyme with what we've been programmed to believe how politics works. So at the beginning of the book, you write the Democratic consensus that we're talking about with 68. The Democratic consensus found in many accounts is that Nixon stole the 1968 election by committing treason and violating the Logan Act. The Republican consensus is that Johnson, by creating the illusion of a sudden change in the status of the war, made a last minute effort to steal the election for Humphrey, which failed. Uh, And you say each interpretation is perpetuated myths that distort our understanding of the campaign and election result. Like, I don't want you to give away the whole book. I think people need to read it and sort of take it in. But with regards to those two consensuses, what are the main points that you would offer to say, hey, maybe that's not the whole truth? Oh, I think uh, two reactions. First and foremost, that figures like Johnson and figures like Nixon, who are both pretty criticized in a lot of history books for different reasons, in fact, many, I would say more often than not in their political careers, they were centrists. That actually Nixon wasn't as depicted most of the time. I can point the times he was partisan, but he wasn't what political cartoonist Herblock showed as kind of this guy who crawls out of the sewer every two or four years. You know, he was partisan during his congressional years and sometimes under Eisenhower. But he and Johnson understood, I think, when, by the time they reached the apex of, of the political profession, they understood the importance of the political center, the, the political center of gravity, you know, in, in our system. And so I think, you know, oftentimes we we, you know, we, we see 
this politician is far right. Donald Trump is a far right Republican. Well, I, I, Republicans from New York City, like Nelson Rockefeller, typically are not even Republicans anywhere else in the country. Um, so I think it, what, what I'm trying to say is, is while the events themselves don't change of the year, our perspective changes enormously based on uh, new evidence, uh, successive events. And so I think I would suggest the idea that these 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 preconceived ideas that we're, we're forced to form each week about our own political era might not be as it really seems, and it takes a long time in history to have the perspective in order to see things. I think in a more dispassionate way. It's the lesson of the book, and I think it's a lesson that we can apply to our own era today. Before we start wrapping up, I just had a few more questions. If you have the time, and th this next one is sort of outside of. Uh, the book, but I'm very interested in the figure of Richard Nixon. And I agree with your assessment that he wasn't always uh, what he was depicted as. In a lot of ways, he could come off as very centrist. Uh, you know, he even helped pass things like the uh, Endangered Species Act. So I've always found Nixon to be a very curious character. And given that you've written so much about Nixon, Watergate, uh, you know, you had that court case resulting in the declassification of the um, records concerning the U.S. versus G. Gordon Liddy. I really want to know from your perspective, who was Richard Nixon and what drove him? Because I actually think he's kind of an enigma in some ways. Well, I, I mean, you set it up pretty well there. Um, you know, Nixon is probably the most, uh, I mean, not just the most investigated politician, although maybe Trump will surpass that but probably the most stereotyped in, in modern U.S. politics. And maybe Trump will surpass him there, too, ultimately. Um, but Nixon, I think the closer you look, you know, we tend to put we tend to put presidents in kind of in a, in a box, in categories There's liberals or conservatives or moderates. But Nixon doesn't really fit any other box. And, and if he does, I'm not sure he shares that box with anyone else. I mean, there there were phases of his careers where I would argue he was very conservative, very anti-communist. But he went to China and Moscow and, you know, made friends with our, with our communist enemies. He was very conservative at times, I mean, fiscally, socially. Um, but I think he basically agreed with Roe v. Wade and probably and not just Endangered Species, Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, EPA. Um, I mean, you look at his presidency. I'm getting ahead of the book here. Um, and I haven't written a book that's kind of comprehensive about it. I, I don't know. I, I'd be interested one day if enough new records come out, because there's a lot of records that are not out yet, including Nixon's own personal papers. But if you look at Nixon's presidency, those five and a half years, number one, an awful lot of what he did as president started under Johnson and was continued into Nixon. Johnson either ran out of time or ran out of political capital. And I think it'd be hard in modern U.S. history to find two presidencies that are more linked uh, and Nixon's was largely a continuation. But a lot of the things that, that Nixon did ultimately undermined a conservative Republican base, getting out of the war, going to China, going to Moscow, all of that, I guess, progressive domestic policy didn't make any conservative Republicans happy. And so I think he believed as a president, you know, his job was to govern as a centrist and not govern as you know earlier versions of himself. I also wanted to draw attention to are there a lot of similarities between him and LBJ? Because I think they both grew up relatively poor. And in a way, they're they're kind of culturally and I guess in their class orientation growing up, they're not like part of the like, um, you know, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant sort of um, well-heeled cultured class. So. Yeah, no, you're 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 right. Uh, you know, I, I can't say it any better. Um, you know, I discussed this once with LBJ's daughter Lucy, uh, and she said, um, you know, on the surface, they're they're totally different. Democrat, Republican, their politics, their approach to policy, their approach to governing, their personal styles, uh, not a lot of similarities. But they're linked by other more you know less visible but still powerful forces, modest upbringings. Uh, deeply aware and insecure, they didn't go to prep school and to some of the best colleges. Nixon are, the Whittier. Not, not to interrupt you, but are, are they also? It, it, I, I get the impression they were also kind of insecure and felt maybe they were looked down upon because of their backgrounds or their upbringings. Well, yeah, that's where I was going. I and mean, Johnson at Texas State looked down upon by national media, 
as they felt, you know, elite figures nationwide, but also in their own parties. And I, you know, Lady Bird's diary, I remember at one point says um, when Nixon visited the Johnson White House, she says something like, I heard Mr. Nixon refer to Georgetown dinner parties in a way that was exactly how Lyndon might have said it. And so, but these aren't things we see. Uh, these are less visible similarities they had, but I think these were sort of deep ties, nonetheless, that bound them and their two presidencies together. How much did that drive them, like the, their personal ambitions and whatnot? Well, there's different ways to look at it. Because I, I, you know, I, I am a historian. I will not try to put myself on the couch here. Um, but you know, I think I think it's often if you're defeated overwhelmingly it can really destroy your optimism and you give up. Uh, time to change professions at that point. But Johnson and Nixon, when they failed, they often fell just a little bit short. And when you fall a little bit short, you kind of search yourself and you find more in the tank, you come back stronger and you study and you figure out what you did wrong. And I think that's the story of, I think often Johnson and Nixon's political career, their victories and their defeats, where they often, they experienced many victories and many defeats but the defeats, they, they found a way to learn from and, and come back stronger. And they, they they certainly were among two of the hardest working politicians of their generation. I sometimes dream had they had, had Johnson not withdrawn, that would have been the ultimate political battle in 1968. Each of their own generation, Johnson versus Nixon, they, they might have killed each other by the end of that one. I'm not sure. But I mean, they, these were all to, I mean, you, people sometimes throw in Kennedy in there, but I would not in this case. I mean, Johnson and Nixon were the ultimate politicians of their generation and of modern United States history. Two more things, and I, I, I nearly forgot to ask you about this, and I'd be kicking myself if I didn't ask you. One of the big parts of your book is the Southern strategy, which a lot of people talk about, and they say, you know, that was key to Nixon's, uh, you know, success. You sort of take issue with that. Why is that? Well, I think I, I have a different take, like, like so much in the book. You know, I, look, anybody can Google kind of Richard Nixon's Southern strategy and, and read all that's been written over the decades on that. I, I would argue that that especially with George Wallace from Alabama in the race, uh, the, the strategy of Nixon and even of Humphrey is totally different. Um, and, I, and, and secondly, I would say that if you show me a candidate in any election who doesn't have a strategy in the South, I'll probably show you the loser of that election. Um, I, I think that if Wallace would not have run, then it would have forced Nixon and Humphrey to actually campaign in the South. We would have seen a Southern strategy from Nixon and from Humphrey. And ultimately, they didn't need to. They made no major appearances. They conceded all those deep South voters and those who might have been more motivated on the issue of race all to Wallace and kind of chipped around at, at the edges. I think Nixon's Southern strategy had had he had his choice would have been, you know, if you go back to those red and blue maps of Eisenhower and Nixon of 52 and 56, Eisenhower actually began to chip away at that traditional Democratic South, winning Virginia twice. He won Louisiana in 1956, we forget. And Nixon's strategy would have been to hold that territory that another moderate Republican had started to, to claw back, you know, at, at great effort. I think that really would have been, you know, Nixon's strategy. But I think ultimately what it was, the strategy was stay out of the South. You don't want to go head to head with uh, with Wallace. You certainly don't want it to be on the same debate stage with Wallace and just concede those voters and focus your energies elsewhere. Last thing I wanted to ask you about was uh, when we look at, you know, Donald Trump today, who is still in the headlines and, you know, more so than ever now with these uh, latest developments, legal developments. How would you compare Nixon and Trump? Because sometimes I think there's similarities, but I think there's also differences. And I also think people leave out that, you know, Wallace has a lot of similarities to Trump uh, as much, if not more so, than Trump has similarities with Nixon. Yeah, it's a great question. And it's one that's going to keep coming up between now and, and uh, November of next year. And we go back to the polls, um, you know, right after the 2016 election, the comparisons between Trump and Nixon began right away. I, I was quoted in a lot of stories talking about this uh, and the media for about six months really fed, uh, you know, on that narrative. Uh, well, look, they did have similarities. They, they, they probably were the two politicians in modern U.S. history who were anti-media 
uh, sometimes anti-establishment in some cases, although Nixon was fairly establishment in his political career. Um, and also, I think their personalities, a kind of combative style. But more than that, they were friends. They knew each other. I think Trump thought it was prestigious to be compared to Nixon. Uh, we don't know what Nixon thought. He died in 1994 about the comparisons. But then you see about six months, it changes. And by mid-2017, I remember CNN, uh, Peter Baker, The New York Times, and others began to focus more on the Trump-Wallace comparisons. So maybe that's actually a better model to be looking at. I think maybe Trump borrows from both playbooks, you know, of, of Nixon, you know, I mean, and of Wallace. It's a very kind of anti-establishment message uh, in his campaign. Um, you know, but I think ultimately, I think I would look at Nixon and Trump and focus on their differences. You know, while Nixon ran, you know, as an outsider in 68, who just been in the wilderness for a number of years, he had one of the most linear paths to the White House, House, Senate, Vice President, uh, eight years under Eisenhower, a very establishment figure. Whereas Trump, I think, is really what you get when you get an anti-establishment figure, someone who who I think oftentimes doesn't have respect for institutions, mainly because he didn't help to create them. He's got no legislative record to defend. He's got no history of voting for NATO or for the military. He doesn't have he comes with kind of a blank slate. It's a bit of a wild card in terms of predicting which direction he might go. So I would say politically, you know, that makes their orientation very different. I think in other ways, their personality styles, their kind of mostly moderate political instincts is another similarity. Uh, and their campaigning against the media, which both gives them benefits, but also detracts from their message. So, but I think on the whole, though, they're, they're fairly different people. So I, I don't want to misinterpret. Do you think that Nixon would have had, I guess, more respect for institutions than Trump? Because I I, th I wanted to get into Watergate and, and like, what are the similarities and differences between Trump and, and you know, Watergate? Well, politicians of Nixon's era, you know, who were in Congress in the late 1940s and early 50s, I mean, they helped to create the Marshall Plan and support for NATO and, uh, you know, the sort of post-war defense posture of the United States, support for the Korean War and anti-communism. I mean, they helped to build, you know, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee votes that created a lot of this infrastructure of the Cold War typically were unanimous votes, Republicans and Democrats. Uh, I can't tell you the last, might have been the last time we had unanimous votes in Congress. And so that was the generation that Nixon was from. He worked in the New Deal as an administrator of the Office of Price Administration. Um, and so, you know, a very different kind of orientation. I mean, Nixon was from the, the Depression era. You know, he served in, you know, he's among the greatest generation who served in the South Pacific in World War II. So I think there are kind of fundamental differences in their own, their, the way they experienced this nation and kind of the, and world events that contributed to their, their ultimate political stances in different ways. And, and as I said, how would you compare the scandal of Watergate to, you know, the, the many scandals of Trump and his indictment? Well, that that is a history that uh, not only hasn't been written, I would argue, but uh, as a historian, uh, you know, look, I can barely make sense of the past. Uh, I could never make sense of the present. Um, but no, as we sit here today, uh, look, I, I think the reason why this book is so different than others is because um, it's been just enough time. You know, 50 years is kind of just enough time where the records are out. Usually the people are gone, unfortunately, because I love to talk to them while they're still around. There's not really, I would say, an authoritative book on Watergate. Uh, millions of pages are still coming out uh, from the National Archives. 500 hours of Nixon tapes are still closed from this time period. So I think the basic tools of the trade that a good writer, researcher, investigator needs to write, and of course the story of Watergate's wrapped up in intelligence reform in the 1970s, the Church Committee, the House Committee on Assassinations, the Carter presidency. I mean, the history of the 70s, even though it seems like it should have been written by now, really hasn't been written yet because the records are just becoming available. And, you know, historians, it's like putting a puzzle and you, you're gathering the pieces a little at a time. You can't cheat and look at the box and see what the result's supposed to look like. And you never get all the pieces before you have to make judgments. But I think that, that, we're, that what we're talking about, we're entering a period of the 70s that's still, it's, it's 50 years old to everybody else, but it's really brand new to historians who are trying to do a deep dive in archives. 
Yeah, I would just add to that. I, I think it'll be interesting as more work comes out about the 70s, uh, because, you know, I know I know there's a lot of talk about the 60s um, culturally and politically. But I mean, the 70s seem like it's it's a time ripe of ripe with, I mean, you know, cultural change. The counterculture was still around in the 70s, just in different ways and also still a lot of political turmoil, you know, things like the weather underground and whatnot. So I think it'll be interesting to see more historians cover that history. Oh, you're exactly. I mean, within a dozen years, we go from hippies to Watergate to Reagan in the White House. I mean, you could you couldn't have dreamed the scenario up. It's a huge period of transition. And you're exactly right. You know, I talk to people all the time who say, well, I wasn't, oh, you teach history. Well, I was never very good at history because I couldn't memorize people, places, and dates. And I try to say gently, history is so much more. History is a constant debate that never ends. We're trying to figure out who we are and how we got here, where we might be going next. And as new evidence is open, we constantly have to force ourselves to deny these preconceived ideas that we all have and, and be open to new evidence as it's open, as it's released. Well, hey, Luke A. Nichter, I want to thank you again for coming on Parallax Views. I hope everyone checks out the book, The Year That Broke Politics, Collusion and Chaos in the Presidential Election of 1968. Uh, I'll give you the final word. What do you hope that listeners get out of this conversation? And what do you get out of the book? Thanks again. Well, you know, we talked about 68. There's not a lot of hope or optimism in 68. And then maybe there's not in our era today. You know, these words are not in the book. But I think there is a message of hope and optimism that maybe there still are millions of people around the political center uh, who, you know, are, are still bound together by things that, that make us Americans. And if we can survive, you know, go back to Ray Price. The Civil War was a, it was a, an act, 1860s was an actual civil war. If the 1960s was a proxy civil war, you know what, we got through the 1960s. And I think we can get through today, too. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with historian Luke A. Nichter, and that you'll check out his book, The Year That Broke Politics, Collusion and Chaos in the Presidential Election of 1968. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like right. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight. With no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.